Okay, so it's uh, Nehemiah, and we're into chapter 2. Here we go. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, uh, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of hearts. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so they will uh, provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Okay, so this is the, uh, the fir- third occasion uh, when we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah together. And a relatively new series that we'll be spending some time going through over the next uh, weeks and months. And uh, we've seen so far, first of all, that um, Nehemiah, living in Susa, a, a, a capital city 800 miles away from Jerusalem, spends some time with one of his brothers, Hanani. And the month is the month of Kislev, which is apparently roughly equivalent to November, December. So it's, it's an autumnal month, which again kind of feels appropriate. Um, so he spends time with Hanani, and Hanani says there's some devastating news. The, the walls of the city of Jerusalem are, are in ruins, and uh, the city is in absolute disgrace. That news hits uh, Nehemiah like a ton of bricks. Obviously, God's people at this point are all um, in exile. Uh, they've, they've been taken away into foreign nations, um, really because of their rebellion against God. God had determined to do that because for so long, for so many generations, they'd wandered away from him. But now people are beginning to, to look to God, to return to God. And some have already gone back to Jerusalem to restore it, to rebuild the temple. And so progress has been made, but a massive setback has come. And that news then hits Nehemiah. And so he has uh, that, that time there with his brother, and uh, it leads him into a time of, of mourning and sadness. But in his sadness, he then turns to spend time with God. Um, he spends time with God. And we, we last time that we, we read kind of a summary of uh, Nehemiah's prayer, his request to God um, to once again remember his people who uh, are turning back to him. And, uh, and, to, and to grant favor. So he's, he's turned to God, he's, he's fasted, he's prayed. Uh, and that's roughly been a, a, something that he's been doing for about four months. Because now we find out the month is Nisan, 
believe it or not. Um, and that's roughly equivalent to April. So a whole amount of time has passed by in which he's been seeking God, seeking God, seeking God. And now, having spent time with his brother and spent time with God, now he's going to spend time with the king. This is something he's been praying about. So at the end of chapter 1, we found out he, he was praying there, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant, in other words, give me, success today by granting me favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah has a, a, a position of influence. He's a servant, but he's quite an influential, high-powered servant in the court of the king of a massive empire. Uh, and so here he is in the presence of the king whose name I attempted to pronounce. Um, make of that what you will. Uh, now what we see is we're going we're gonna to look through this, this encounter he has with the king. What we see again is this is an incredibly emotional time. Uh, a lot of feelings are involved. We've already looked at that in terms of uh, Nehemiah's sadness. And that's what the king picks up on in just a minute. Uh, his, his mourning. He's, he's weeping. This has truly affected him. Uh, what we see now is that as he spends time with the king, the king notices that he is sad. And, uh, and the king asks, uh, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? Um, the slightly blunter way in which that was expressed in the Hebrew is, why does your face look so bad? Which is a slightly interesting and devastating question. Hopefully, none of you, I'm sure, uh, have to hear that kind of question too often. Why does your face look so bad? I'm, I'm sorry, I can't really do much about it now. Um, it's just how I am. Um, so the king notices. Some people think, oh, perhaps Nehemiah was acting sad in order to get attention. Was he doing that toddler thing of kind of sticking out his bottom lip? What's the matter? Oh, well, it's funny you should ask, because uh, I want this, this, and this, and this. Um, some people would say kind of Nehemiah is kind of uh, being a little bit tricky, really, and, and manipulating the situation, trying to get the king to notice that he's sad, so that the king prompts, prompts the question. But I think in what happens next... That can't really be accurate because Nehemiah is treading on dangerous ground. He's got um, an influential position. He's got a very high-powered boss. And he knows that step, put one foot in the wrong place and there could be a lot of trouble. So, now why is that? A couple of things to consider. Apparently, Persian kings really liked to party. You can kind of tell that because he has employed someone to be his cupbearer. He's employed one person who's responsible for all the alcohol. Um, and it wasn't unusual for a king to want to throw a party um, uh, for, for his courtiers or his subjects. And perhaps that's what's happened here. That for some time he hasn't thrown a party and therefore he's not seen Nehemiah. So Nehemiah's still been working, but perhaps not right up close and personal to the king. The king now wants to throw a party, perhaps. And so Nehemiah is back in a prominent position again, bringing the wine before the king. It's a dangerous thing then to look sad on a happy day. And so Nehemiah's probably aware 
I'm breaking etiquette. I'm, I'm breaking the rules here. It's not a good thing. If the king notices that I'm looking sad, if the king notices that something else is living with me other than what's living with him, then I'm, I'm, in, I'm on dodgy grounds. Um, so he could be thinking that. He could also be thinking, well, actually, this great moment has arrived. He's asked me, why, why is your face looking so sad? I can't initiate this conversation, but now an opportunity has come for me to say, well, actually, I've heard news that the city where my fathers lie buried is in absolute ruin. The walls are broken down. And, uh, and that's what's on my mind. That's what's on my, somewhat, that's what's on my heart. Uh, but this great moment has arrived. The future of Jerusalem uh, depends on what happens in the next few minutes. So it's understandable if Nehemiah was <gasps> just holding his breath. And, uh, and almost we're brought into the action too. So he's asked this question, why does your face look so bad um, when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of hearts. says there, I was very much afraid. This is not something that Nehemiah is just, he's just stuck out his lip. And then he's asked the question, oh, right, well, it's funny you should ask because it's all to do with Jerusalem, you see, and uh, I'm just hoping you'll let me go and, uh, and rebuild it. Yeah? Um, no, this is, he says, I'm very much afraid. It sounds quite a quaint way of, of saying it. Would you ever say to somebody, I was feeling very much afraid. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't necessarily, they're not words that roll off the tongue. It has stronger impact uh, than perhaps we might think. It could be almost, I was feeling utterly great dread. I was right then and there. That's what came over me. Um, fright multiplied up a lot of times um, in my insides. This is a trembling moment. Um, and, uh, but it's a moment for him to seize. It's an opportunity that might not come around again, and we'll look at that in a moment. What I find remarkable about this is, is let's remember that we are reading the words of Nehemiah. We are reading the memoirs of the mighty man of God. We're reading his account of the the vision of the mission that God called him into. And we've seen how he's a great man of prayer. And we're going to go on to see how he's a great man of action. Um, what we see right here is he is frightened. He is scared. And he's chosen to tell us that himself. Okay? He could have just said, I had this conversation with the king. But he wants us to know what was involved. I think he wants us to know that he wasn't feeling tremendously powerful that morning when he woke up. Maybe he prayed that morning. Oh, Lord, um, give me favor in the presence of this man today. He's been praying that. And uh, or maybe he was expecting something to happen on that precise day. Or maybe it was a prayer that he'd been praying a number of times, and he's just waiting for an opportunity to present itself. But however kind of he's been feeling, whatever he's been thinking, right now, when the opportunity presents itself, before his boss... He's more or less terrified. And he decides, actually, when I, when I write up the story, when I say how it happened, I'm going to include that. I'm going to include that at that precise moment, the moment on which it all hung, I was scared. I was weak. I was trembling. There was nothing impressive about, uh, about my conduct right then and there. I felt exposed. I felt vulnerable. He's being totally honest with us. And uh, that's often what we find. Biblical heroes, heroes of the faith, 
don't mind sharing with us through the Bible their vulnerable moments. Or perhaps God doesn't mind sharing with us their vulnerable moments. But this is what Nehemiah has written. He's not celebrating fear. He's not saying, look at me, isn't it wonderful that I was so afraid? He's just being honest, saying this is how it is. As we see elsewhere in the Bible, that is a feature not only of Nehemiah's life, other biblical heroes, but actually that is gives a flavor of what it is to have life in a new covenant. And so we see the same thing um, in, in the New Testament as well. We find out that when Paul writes um, to the Corinthians, Paul, the, the great apostle, um, the great apostle to the Gentiles, this bold man, man of prayer, man of action, traveling here and there, um, sharing the gospel, standing up in the synagogue, getting stoned, getting lowered out of the window um, in a basket so he could escape a city, a whole riot kicking off in Ephesus um, because of stuff that he's been saying and the effect that it, that it has. Wow, what a man, what a man. And yet he writes to the Corinthians this in 2 Corinthians and chapter 12, and we'll read from uh, verse 9. There's been a time when he's been praying, asking God, to, uh, to deliver him from what he calls a, a thorn in his flesh. He says, but he, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, as I was preparing for this message, I was kind of thinking, I was about to write in my notes, um, it's not as if we delight in weaknesses. It's not as if we delight in those occasions when we fear people. Oh, no, I shouldn't say that, because actually Paul writes. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. What is he talking about? Well, he knows that in the midst of his profound weakness, in the midst of the moments where he is trembling with fear, he knows actually... That's an occasion when Christ's power, where Christ's strength can be more evident than, than if I just appeared to have it all sewn up. And if I walked into every situation wearing a white suit and, um, and just looking impressive. Well, I don't think white suits look impressive, but you know what I mean? Um, the, the kind of untouchable, bulletproof man of God walking into any situation, never fearful. I'm here. No, you're saying, Actually, God wants to use me, Paul, the apostle. He wants to use me in the midst of my weakness. And I'm going to delight in that because of the glory that God can get for himself. But he was speaking to a church in Corinth who uh, really weren't all that impressed. And so, I don't know why, but we're going to work backwards through a couple of those books. So 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 5. Uh, Paul writes there, it's kind of a defense of, of his ministry, but I do not think I am in, in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? He's, he's spent time with the Corinthian church. They've seen him. They've received 
uh, his preaching gift. But they look at the man himself, they hear the man himself and they think, well, you're not a trained speaker. You seem a bit timid. And uh, actually, you're not even charging us for your services and you want us to be impressed. For the Corinthians, in a, in a sophisticated city culture, they're thinking, that's not impressive. And maybe there are these, these other super apostles that come and they, they spend time with the Corinthians. They come in and they present very differently. They present of the, the, the man of power for the hour. They're sorted. They've got no scratches. They've got no bruises. They've got no beat, beating marks on their back where they've been, uh, when they've been beaten up for their message. They're just glossy super Christians. And the Corinthians are spending time with those guys as well. I'm thinking, well, who would we rather be like? Would we rather be like Paul? Do we aspire to be like him? Or do we aspire? Would we like to be like these super apostles? Yeah, let's be super Christians, they might have thought. And so, well, Paul's not trying to compete with them. He's saying, I'm not a, tra- I wasn't, I'm not a trained speaker. I don't charge for my services. And uh, right at the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, he, he reminds them, what it was like for him when he came to Corinth. It says in the very beginning of chapter 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. There we have the mighty man of God. There we have the apostle of the gospel. There we have someone that that the Lord God himself has commissioned. Go and share. But he came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. And that gave the Corinthians a problem. Probably because in their sophisticated culture, it was more appropriate to despise weakness. Yeah, we're not kind of celebrating it. Look how weak I am, hooray. No, but it can go the other direction. I despise weakness. And Paul was saying, you know, we've got a treasure, but it's been put in a jar of clay. And a jar of clay doesn't look very impressive. A jar of clay can get some chips and some cracks and take some knocks. But it's what's inside the jar. You're saying, those super apostles might look glossy on the outside. Actually, it's a proof of, of being authentic. Actually, we've got vulnerabilities. That we've got weaknesses. That there are occasions, there are situations when we might actually feel we're trembling because of what's going on. We're trembling because of the situation we find ourselves in. That's not the whole story. That's not all that we can get out of this passage in Nehemiah. But we can see that the, the mighty man of God is in this situation and he's trembling. He's weak. And I think, well, Paul, well, Nehemiah, just doesn't look very glorious, does it? Doesn't look very victorious. And again, if we're supposed to kind of want to imitate our leaders, well, we'd rather go find a super apostle because we want to be like them. We want to be without scratch. We want to be unscathed, breezing through life, 
in a blaze of anointing. And Paul's saying, well, that's just not authentic. We're jars of clay. And we got cracks and we take knocks. And we can feel fear. Now, is it any wonder that that's what's involved in the being authentic in our faith? When we consider what happened to our Savior. Because he went to the cross in a moment of tremendous weakness. In anticipating that moment, he surely trembled. He surely shuddered to, to consider what that moment would involve as he, as he was hung on a cross with nails, as he was suffering a painful slow death from asphyxia, unable to breathe unless he kind of pulls himself up and then he sinks back down. But even more profound was knowing that as he did that, he was taking upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God. Was there anyone who would look so wretched? Is there anyone who would look so weak? Is there anyone who would look the very opposite of glorious and victorious? Do we aspire to follow the Savior or do we kind of hide our face away? When the prophet Isaiah wrote predicting of of one who was to come, In Isaiah chapter 53, he described exactly this. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who's believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But as it goes on, we find out. But the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. Something glorious, something victorious was happening in the moments where Jesus was hung on the cross and where he took upon himself all the punishment for our sin looks like tremendous weakness looks like utter defeat but that's authentic the authentic ministry of jesus it was in fact going to bring about great victory it was his crowning moment this is jesus in his glory king of heaven dying for me that's what was happening do we turn our face away Do we turn our face away from the uncomfortable truth that our whole faith as Christians is built on the fact that the the God who became man hung on a tree, hung on a cross to take a curse and to be utterly despised. He was lifted up, all right, but he was lifted up and people turned their face away or they spat or they mocked or they ridiculed. Well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Why doesn't he come down from the cross if he's the son of God? Call yourself a king, have a crown of thorns. That's what he experienced. For our benefit, for our blessing. So indeed glorious, but it was glorious through profound weakness. It was victory all right, but through what like, through what looked like utter defeat. Do we, do we turn our face away? Do we despise weakness? What is our culture? talking about how we respond to the saviour how also do we respond to to one another do we 
despise, maybe that's a strong word, but I'll say it again anyway. Do we despise weakness when we see it in other people, uh, in other believers? Well, I, I thought that they were really strong. I thought that, that he was such a man of prayer and action and, and faith and boldness and courage. Well, now I get a bit closer to him, I realize he's just a jar of clay. Ah, I'll go find someone else, I think. I, I'm not quite sure I want to spend a whole lot of time with someone who's weak. I'll go find someone who's more powerful, more glossy, a little bit more super. Um, we can look down on others. We can shrink back from relationships. Uh, we can think, oh, I need to go somewhere else. I need to speak to someone else to get something really authentic. Um, because if it was really authentic faith, then it would be totally victorious and triumphant. I'm not sure that's what we see here in Nehemiah. I don't think that's what we see when we look at Paul. And that's certainly not what we see when we get close to Jesus. So let's get close to one another. And rather than shrink away when we encounter, there's a bit of treasure there, but it's a jar of clay. Actually, we need to press in. Do we, do we despise weakness in other people? Do we also despise weakness when we encounter it in ourselves? So we can be fearful that perhaps people will respond to us in the same way. Well, if they know, if they know what's really going on, if they know the thing that's really kind of dominating, if they know what's happening in the work, in my workplace, if they know what's happening in, in family life, if they know what's happening in my neighborhood, if I make myself open, if I'm honest, if I make myself vulnerable and say, will you stand with me and pray in this painful situation? If I do that, what will happen to these relationships? What will happen? How will people respond to me? Will people shrink back because they don't know really what to say or how to handle things? Or, or, or will they just kind of look back down on me and think, well, oh, they're just not authentic then, are they? You're not a strong believer after all, are you? You're not authentic. Will people shrink away from me if I'm open? And it's so important that we, in both ways, push, push through because those things probably come as a bit of a bit of a recipe for then just bringing about isolation. And God says, "I want to, I want you to be a family together. You're to be a family. You're to be, you're to be, in other words, in close relationship, genuine friendship amongst the people of God." But actually, something else can creep in, and. We can start to become wary. We can start to think, oh, I've got to keep my guard up. I mustn't let people see that things aren't always rosy and, uh, and perfect. And so actually church can be a place or a group of people that meet together, but start putting each other at arm's length, turning up for meetings, but it, it, things not really going much deeper than that. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, I reminded you that Terry Virgo has written a book, uh, called the Spirit-Filled Church. I know we looked at that uh, a little uh, a little while back. I'm just going to turn to um, Terry Virgo, chapter eight, um, verse. No, sorry, I'm not. Uh, page, <laughs> uh, page 77. Uh, he describes in this book, the Spirit-Filled Ch- Church, what he encountered when he got baptized in the Spirit. He uh, he then started being open about his faith with friends and colleagues, and he lost all his friends. He said. Uh, we were used to spending time together. We were used to conversations which went deep. We enjoyed each other's company. But as soon as they found out 
that actually my faith in Jesus was, was real and significant to me, they all turned their back on me. And so actually coming to Jesus and, uh, and, and, and being bold and kind of public with my faith involved quite a lot of loss and brought about some loneliness. And so he says, actually what I did then was I just threw myself into lots and lots of meetings. Every night of the week I could go to a meeting at the church and there could be a Bible study there and, and youth work there and, because this is going back a little while, uh, choir practice on a certain night of the week. Loads of different things he could, he could get stuck into. Um, but he said, in it all, no friends. <laughs> very busy, very active, lots of meetings, no friends. Uh, but then he, ha- he starts to describe as other people were kind of being freshly, freshly receiving uh, something of the spirit in their life. Actually, they started to meet in one another's homes, got a lot more relaxed and informal. They got to know each other. They used, would you believe it, they started using first names rather than surnames. Crazy. That used to happen. Anyway, he writes, uh, chapter 8 on page 77. For some, the leap to real friendship proves so difficult that something else creeps in. Instead of genuine friendship comes a strange super-spirituality. Syrup-sweet choruses followed by obscure readings or visions shared in an atmosphere of growing unreality. A new experience of the Spirit opens the way to the possibility of friendship, but it does not guarantee it. We do not automatically make friends by meeting in charismatic prayer meetings, he writes. Instead of formal church services, true friendship calls for open-eyed confrontation as well as uh, melting moments in worship. True friendship has to be developed outside of Christian meetings. For friendship to flourish, there must be openness, honesty, and loyalty. We must be willing to come out from behind our masks and religious jargon and get to know each other openly. That's what he's writing about the spirit-filled church. And again, something else can creep in, some alternative. And it's kind of super spirituality. It belongs to the super apostles. And it's just unreal. It's not authentic. And actually, what we've been called to, to be a spirit-filled church, is that, like Nehemiah here, in the right moments, at the right time, yeah, we do put our heart on our sleeve sometimes. It doesn't mean that every moment is a, an opportunity for me to overload, unload myself and kind of just gush all over everybody I meet with. Oh, life is this and that and the other. Pray for me. Gather round. It's not that it's happening every day. But actually there are moments when we can do something approaching that. And we're friends. That's true. should be true regardless of whatever you do in the life of the church. Man, this is only my first point. Crumbs. Um... <laughs> Sorry, just looked at the time. You're probably already doing that subtly. <laughs> it's the clock at the back of the hall uh, that I need to keep my eyes on. Um, but uh, <laughs> where are we going now? Um, but we've got to pursue that, regardless of whatever our role is. Nehemiah would become the leader. He would lead this great movement to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But right from the outset, he's saying, I don't want you to think but I'm a super believer. I don't want you to be under the false impression that even if I'm in a position of leadership, that means somehow I'm untouchable, 
that nothing concerns me, that fear never has an opportunity to get in. And sometimes what can happen in the church is leaders get put on a, on kind of like a different level somehow than ordinary believers. No, we're all ordinary believers. And God calls different ones of us to different things at different times. And that will look different, serving God for you and for me and for each of us will look different. But it doesn't mean we're somehow a different breed from each other. No, all of us are people. All of us are sheep in one flock. All of us are jars of clay. All of us who've come to Christ have caught a treasure within us, though, and that has an opportunity to come out. Whatever grades you got at school, <laughs> if you got no grades at school, you're an authentic believer. If you've received Christ and the Spirit of God lives in you, you've got treasure in you and ways in which God might call you to lead, lead out in new ways. It's, it's not about a hierarchy and those at the top are really impressive. There's not a top. We're together. We're a people and, I, and therefore a culture of friendship is to be amongst us. Wearing core groups and over a cup of coffee or whatever, we can actually be real with what's going on. There we have it. So, <laughs> point number one. Um, feelings are involved. Fear is involved. And Nehemiah doesn't hide that away when he's writing up his memoirs. Don't worry, the other two points are brief, but they're important. Let's go for it. The other thing we see here, this is not all about fear. This is not all about, I was very much afraid. This encounter that Nehemiah has with King What's-His-Name is also reveals, I think, profound faith on Nehemiah's part. Just you, you do kind of catch your breath as the conversation goes through because it's not immediately clear how the king is responding. He's saying, well, what do you want? Okay, well, here we go. And uh, what this demonstrates, what this conversation demonstrates is, I think, bold, courageous faith on Nehemiah's part, even in the midst of his own fear. So he's frightened, but he still goes for it. He still seizes the moment. He's been praying about this. He's been seeking God about it. For four months, that's what's been happened. For four months, this has just been him and God, him and God, him and God. Now, it's him and the king. And uh, I think what's been happening whilst he's been praying is that he's also been, been planning. He's been working out on his knees before God. How could this be any different? And so he starts to imagine, I think, well, I can't really do anything from here. I need to go. I need to go to Jerusalem. To be able to go to Jerusalem, the king needs to send me to Jerusalem. Uh, in, order to, in order to kind of be able to do anything meaningful, um, I need some raw materials. So if it came about, what I'd probably need to make sure I got was some kind of letter so that I could go to the keeper of the forest and I can get some wood. I can get the raw materials. And possibly what else I would need is to, uh, uh, is to have some, some letter, uh, proving that what I do is, is okay and then I can get safe passage back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and that's all likely to take kind of this amount of time. He's been praying and he's been planning. He's been imagining in faith, how could this pan out? And so when the moment comes, he's not just saying, you know, in, in response to the question, what is it that you want in verse four? It's like, oh, he's not just scratching his head. He's not saying something vague and woolly. He's, he's actually precise. He's spent some time working it through. And that kind of unfolds as the conversation goes along. But at this point, as we, as we kind of get into that conversation, you say, well, 
It needs to start with a conversation with the king. He's not able to initiate that. He's not in control of that. And so he's praying, oh God, let this open up. Let some situation open up. Everything hinges on this one moment with one person and a conversation that could only last about one minute. The party goes on. The moment could be lost, but he seizes it. If he's vague, if he dodges the question, there's no knowing whether the opportunity will come again. There's no plan B. There's, there's no other, other way. And then he gets a question, what is it that you want? What I love about what happens is he's been praying a lot. Okay, he's been praying for four or five months. Um, and this has been dominating his, his thinking as well. But when he gets that question, what is it you want? He does this. Help. Amen. Right. Um, actually, the thing that needs to happen is I need to go back to Jerusalem. But he prays what's called the arrow prayer. Um, this is the, the split second cry to God. Help me right now. I need it for this conversation in his head. And then it, it goes on. It reminds me of another situation. Going back a few years actually in life of us as a church, um, of a, a situation where again there was no plan B. A sense of faith that emerged for something. There was no plan B. God had to do something incredible. And it was to do with, um, uh, the kids club. And we ran a kids club, uh, in, uh, the north of the city. And, uh, during the course of that club running, hundreds of kids came along, uh, from non-church backgrounds and, uh, loads of games, uh, worship songs, teaching, hilarity, drama, worryingly weird costumes and all the rest of it, all in the name of the gospel. And um, it came to the point where the team was sensing, we're doing this in one place, but it, we just feel that God is calling us to do it in, in two places. And the place we'd really love to do it is Shirecliffe Community Centre, uh, which is where the North Congregation meets. And uh, so they made an inquiry, can we do a kids club at that building on a Saturday morning? And the answer came back, no, because for 16 years... Um, there's been a dance class that's happened in that hall at the same time. Okay. Well, there's no plan B. Okay. The team go back and pray. I just get an increasing sense that God does want us to have it. God does want us to meet there. God does want us to do a kids club there. But they just hold on. They, they pray. They've got a sense of what God is doing. And after a while, January the 3rd, apparently, whatever the year was, ring up Shire Community Center. And they say straight away, that's funny you should ring. Because actually that lady who's been running the dance class has just stopped. 16 years has come to an end. She's moved on. Would you still be interested in using that? Uh, yeah, we would. And, and we'd like to start on the 12th of January. Well, that could be possible. Um, that's a phone, by the way. Uh, that, that could be possible. But, um, but it has to be approved. It has to be approved by the committee. And the committee meets on the 11th of January. That's the day before. Ah, this could be interesting. Well, in order to do it, the plans were developing. In fact, resources were being put into it. New equipment, new benches, new costumes probably, was all, all, being, all being prepared. The team's growing. Not actually got a venue. It's not been approved yet. The meeting's on the 11th, and they've said we're going to start the kids' club on the 12th. So what happens? I don't know if anyone else is with you, Mark, but Mark goes round to the Shirecliffe Community Centre, and, and uh, a meeting's just finished in the evening. And they say, well, what, what was the decision? 
Yes, we have approved your request. Wonderful. Bring it in, lads. And all the stuff piles in off the van. <laughs> and it's all there. Now, what's going on? Well, we hoped you'd say yes. <laughs> Crazy. No plan B. Brilliant faith. We think God's saying something and we're going to go for it. So this is what's happening for Nehemiah. Yeah, there's a bit, there's a bit of a fear in the mix, but he's got, he's got courageous faith, crazy faith. We've heard God and therefore we're believing for something to open up. And, um, we're not thinking pragmatically this could work and that and this and the other and whatever. It's like, no, I, I need to go to Jerusalem. I need the king to send me. I need these letters. There's no other way. It's got to be that way. And, uh, and Nehemiah is a man of, of daring faith. And again, so what is our culture? Daring to believe, daring to dream. Hearing God, taking steps of faith by virtue of having heard God, whether or not the building's available, whether or not the money's there, whether or not it's obvious how it's all going to pan out in particular detail. Or, let's not get our hopes up. Let's play it safe. Let's just always see how things pan out. Or, in spite of our fear, or in spite of the risk of getting egg on our face, it was more than that for Nehemiah, um, seizing the moment. Nehemiah seized the moment. He could have lost Lost? Goodness me. He could have lost his life if the king was having a bad day or the king just didn't care about Jerusalem. He could have been out of there in moments. But as a, a, a time for daring faith. Lastly, we could think in all of this that Nehemiah is the hero. Nehemiah was fearful, but he had great faith. Praise God for Nehemiah. What a man. We could think that, that he's the hero of the story. But in what pans out, what is the, what is the explanation given for the king's response? Again, Nehemiah wants us to see it crystal clear. Partway through verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. There's fear, there's faith. But the key thing is, this is the favor of God. This is actually the plan of God. This is the idea of God. This is the scheme of God unfolding. And God just happens to have chosen a man, Nehemiah, who's prepared to spend time with him. And uh, despite his fear, is prepared to take a step of faith to be involved in it. But this is something that God is doing. This is not a story about Nehemiah's courage per se, his gift of diplomacy, his planning or his force of personality. The reason this vision, the reason this mission gets off the ground is all because of God's favor. The gracious hand of my God was on me. And again, what is our culture? Expecting to encounter the favor of God? Expecting God to answer even the briefest of arrow prayers when we find ourselves in a moment of sudden opportunity. How's it all going to pan out? Are we believing for God's favor? Do we believe he has plenty of it to go around? Do we believe that he is in control? Now, like we were singing earlier on, our God is bigger then every situation that we might walk into that causes us to tremble or causes us to think, Lord, if you don't show up, I've so got egg on my face. Lord, if you don't show up, 
I don't know what's going to happen to my job. Nehemiah had a powerful and influential job. But he was employed by a guy who had the potential, at least, to be a complete tyrant. His job was on the line. His life was on the line. The future of Jerusalem, God's people, God's city was on the line. But he dared to believe that God would show him favor in the midst of it. He dared to believe God is bigger than my boss. God is bigger than the trembling moments that I might experience. We must be authentic and therefore we must be open and vulnerable. We must allow ourselves to be seen as jars of clay. We mustn't shrink back from that. We mustn't decide that the spiritual life is about becoming a super Christian. Maybe then one day I'll become a super leader. And who knows, even super apostolic ministry will open it. And then I've got to change my wardrobe completely. It's like, no, you're called to be, we are called to be an ordinary Christian, an ordinary believer in Jesus who just happens to be filled with the Spirit, who just happens to have a faith that's growing, who just happens to be persuaded in a God that's bigger than King Artax, what's his name, and bigger than Goliath or bigger than whoever, bigger than Satan, bigger than everything. He's the one that we have faith in. And therefore, when we get together, we're praying for favor. We're expecting God to open doors. And we're comfortable in the midst of it all being jars of clay. Amen. Let's pray.